You know, it's so interesting. Um, what happened was uh, my daughter and I were, were going on a road trip to visit family in the Free State. My in-laws live in Fixburg. Does anybody know where Fixburg is? And uh, she said, on the way back, she said, can't we go and visit the Brants? Because she's like second family. She's like the daughter there. She spends more time. When they were in Meltbus, I think she spent more time there than she did with me. And as we were driving here, I said, I've done this exact trip once before from Fixburg to Odzone to Cape Town. And the last time I did that exact trip was when Mike and Adrian DeFay planted this church in Odzone and it was the very first meeting. And there's been a lot of water under the bridge since then, right? There's been lots of changes, lots of things happening. God's done some amazing things. There's been some challenges and difficulties. Uh, there's been heartaches. There's been fights. There's been... But that's family, right? In any family, when you look back, you know, I look back, I'm, I'm over 21 now. <laughs> Bear yourselves. But I look back at my family and my parents, and I've got incredibly good memories, really fond memories of amazing family moments. I can also remember the fights and the disagreements and the difficult times and the grieving. But that's life. And, and the Lord never promised us an easy passage where everything's going to be sunlight and roses. He said, I'm going to be with you through all of life's circumstances. And I really believe the Lord has been with you as a, as a church. But I'm really excited because I believe the Lord is bringing you into a, a new season. I know that's kind of a Christian cliche, isn't it? New season. People use it all the time. But with Darby and Liesl here, I, I want you to understand, when we said goodbye to them in Meltboss, there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. There really was. There was snot and tears because they're so loved. And also, not just the people who loved them, but amongst the eldership team, there's a real sense of what on earth are we going to do now without them? Because they were so key of so amazing, such an amazing part of that congregation. I led that congregation for a while. And when, when I arrived in Meltbos to lead it, I decided I've got to get to know everybody. I've got to get to know all the leaders. And and as I was getting to know the leaders and getting to know people, I was asking them where they were up to and who they knew and who they were in relationship with. And one couple's name came up all the time. We're here because of this couple. We're still alive because of this couple. Our marriage is still in one piece because of this couple. And that couple was Darby and Liesl. And so when we sent them, you know, the Lord says, when you give an offering, give your best. We didn't send our best preacher, I'll be honest. Sorry, Darby. <laughs> we didn't send our best preacher. We didn't send our best worship leader. Although, as a team, they were like half of our worship team. But we sent the largest part of our heart. And I believe that that's what the Lord knows that this congregation needs right now his heart, the heart of Jesus, that will show you the heart of Jesus and show you how to love each other like Jesus does. Because the hallmark of Christianity, the hallmark of of what we're supposed to be and the way the world will know that God is real is what? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you have an amazing preacher in your midst. Now, 
or that your worship rocks. No. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love one for another. And I really believe you're coming into a season where you're going to be really experiencing and learning how to love each other better. Loving across age gaps. Loving across culture and ethnic boundaries and language boundaries. I felt so welcomed here and I'm a Roynek. I'm as English as they come. I will confess I was shouting for the lions last night. I kept getting daggers and yet still I'm loved. They still fed me after that. I don't know if they'd fed me, would they have fed me if the lions had won? I don't know, but. But I believe the Lord is really going to multiply that amongst you. And you're really going to experience the love of God. Poured out amongst you and through you to others. And that's exciting, isn't it? Because long after the music fades, and long after you've forgotten what was preached, the love of God in our hearts is what's going to make all the difference. But I want to share a word for you, and I just felt uh, this was a word for some of you this morning that you needed to hear it to encourage you. And, uh, you know, hearing from God, some people act like it's this exact science. Like, I've heard from God, so I'm always right. I always have doubt. I think I've heard God, I prefer to preach, and then I arrive and I think, man. Did I hear God? Did I get it right? Because I make mistakes. That might surprise some of you, but I do make mistakes. But with the word that came earlier, and with the one song about resurrection, I want to talk about, about what happens in our time of failure. What happens when we don't get it right? How many of you know what it's like to not get it right? And we've got this challenge, haven't we? Because in church, we're expected to be holy. And then we look at ourselves and we realize just how far from that we really are. You know, some years ago, we were in a a meeting in Sunningdale and Russell Fraser was preaching. Now, Russell is one of the most likable guys on the planet. Those of you who've never met him, everybody loves Russell. Everybody. Even people who hate Russell love Russell. And Russell was was preaching, and as he was preaching, there was a woman at the back, I think there was probably about 300 people, 250 people in the meeting, and this woman at the back started swearing at him in a church service. It's not something you see every day, but hey. And so, you know, everybody's welcome, we don't want to reject anybody, but somebody shouting out and swearing during the preach is a little distracting, so I, I kind of calmly and gently said, why don't you just come with me for a chat, and we went outside. And I was talking to her and she was a little high, which explained part of it. And I said, and I just started to ask her a question. I said, why are you here? You know, if you hate what's being said, and if it makes you so angry, and it causes you to swear, why did you come? She said, I came for my daughter. She said, there's no hope for me, but maybe there's still hope for my daughter. It broke my heart to hear that. And I said, there's hope for everybody. There is still hope for you. She said, no, you don't understand. I'm not holy like the people in that room. 
And I said, let me tell you about the people in that room. Just the people that I know in that room. One friend of mine, a young man, used to be a male prostitute. There's drug addicts in that room. And alcoholics. There's a diamond smuggler in that room. Or he used to smuggle diamonds. And an ex, as long as he's still tired, it would be, no. <laughs> I said, there's, there's somebody there who used to rob banks. There's a guy in there who killed his own grandmother. And I wasn't exaggerating. I said, that's who's in that room. And that's why they worship like they do. Not because they think they're holy, but because they know they serve a holy God. And they've realized they deserve nothing and they've been given everything. And there's hope for everybody. Because nobody's beyond the reach of God. And that's a message we need to hear, not just for those who've never come to know the Lord, but for those of us who've come to know him and then fail. I know what that's like. I've served the Lord for for 50 years. You're supposed to say, no way, you don't look that old. That's what you're supposed to say. 40 years ago, I I was a kids church leader. 35 years ago, I was a youth leader. I've, I've spent decades serving the Lord and I can, I can give you a long preach. I can preach for hours on all the miracles I've seen, the people that have been saved, the churches that have been changed. I can preach for hours on how God has used me powerfully, but I can preach for days on how many times I've messed up and failed. And yet here I am, preaching the word of God. Now I'm not saying... I believe in compromise and ignoring sin. But I do believe we've got to become a lot more comfortable with failure. Because it's something we all do. You know, one of the most emotional things I've been... Who's been watching the Olympics the past three weeks? I have. Okay, the Springboks annihilated the Lions, that's okay. Great Britain won 65 gold medals. Oh, 65 medals, so, so we win that one. But it's not a competition. But if it were a competition, we won. (laughs) And it's really inspiring to see these gold medalists and they say, I've achieved my dream. But you know what's also really moving is some people who are devastated when they finish fourth. There's one British boxer and he he got a silver medal. He just missed the gold medal in in the final boxing match. And he was distraught. He didn't want to take his silver medal. He said... He said, I didn't win silver. I lost gold. I failed. And he's haunted by the fact that he sees himself as a failure. And that is so many of us. But I thank God that he's a God who loves to restore. He loves to take failures and restore them. He loves to take broken people and heal them. And it's interesting, uh, my daughter started studying psychology this year, so I've been reading some of her books and trying to stretch my brain a bit and learn a little bit. And psychologists are really good at telling you what's wrong. They can even, to some extent, tell you why it's gone wrong. But you know what they're really bad at, actually, is fixing what's wrong. (laughs) It's true. Because there's only one person in this universe 
who can truly fix a broken spirit. Really. And Jesus said something incredible. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the broken. Blessed are the failures. Because when you know you're a failure, when you know you're broken, that's when you open to Jesus working. If you think you're perfect, you don't need Jesus. And somebody once said to me, why is it just Jen attracts so many broken people? We seem to be counseling people all the time. Why do we attract all these broken people, broken marriages and broken families and addicts? And I said, no, it's not that we attract broken people. It's that the world is broken. And I can guarantee every single one of you is broken in some way. No matter how much you put on the outward appearance of holiness and perfection no matter how much you smile through the pain no matter how successful you look and some of the most successful people I know their success is built on trying to compensate for their own brokenness and we look at people with the big houses and the flash cars and we think they must have it all together and they're some of the most broken people amongst us But when we acknowledge our brokenness, that's a beautiful time. Because that's when Jesus can restore. You know, even in relationships. How many of you have experienced a broken relationship, whether it's a friendship or a marriage or or a child? And you just, like in some families and in some relationships, you just pretend and cover up the fact that it's, it's a broken relationship. And it can never get healed. But brokenness is an incredible opportunity to rework foundations and rebuild and see restoration because we serve a God of restoration. We serve a God of resurrection. And even if something seems so broken that it can never be fixed again, that's where God does his best work because he's the God of the impossible, not the possible. Is this making sense to you? Because I, with all due respect... I'm looking at a room full of failures. I look at a failure every time I look in the mirror. But thank God it doesn't stop there. I am a failure, but God. I am a failure, but God. I failed him, but he's never failed me. I've let him down, but he's never let me down. And sometimes I've let him down because I've sinned. And sometimes I've let him down just because I've not done something as well as it should be done. And he loves me anyway. And he restores me. Now, I want to go through a scripture because I'm preaching. So it's a good idea if I use some scripture, right? And a story of where Jesus restores somebody so beautiful. And I want us to listen to the story of how Jesus restores somebody for two reasons. One, so that we can be more willing to come to him to be restored for ourselves. But secondly, to learn how God wants to use us to restore others. Because sometimes in our broken relationships, when people have failed us, we can be reluctant to want to restore You know, I I was chatting to somebody once and somebody had really hurt them. I said, 
you need to forgive. And they said, yeah, I'm going to forgive and ask God to judge them instead. I said, no, that's not forgiveness. That's just hoping God will do the work you want to do. Yeah? I said, no. Asking for forgiveness is to say, Lord, just bless them. But there's some principles in this passage of how we can be those who help to restore the broken. And we find the story at the end of John's gospel. It's a very well-known story. And what's happened is Jesus has died. All of his disciples scattered. He's been resurrected. And this is the third time he appears to them. And they're all busy fishing. And Jesus appears to them. And he says, you know, do this. And they catch all these fish. And then he says, come, let's have breakfast. And when Peter sees that it's Jesus, they're all on the boat. And they all decide to to row the boat to shore. But he can't wait. So he just dives and he swims. He says, I want to get to Jesus as quickly as possible. And this is incredible because Peter was possibly the biggest failure of the 12. Before, just before Jesus is arrested, on the night before his arrest, he says, you're all going to deny me. And big mouth Peter. I identify with Peter so much. He's so quick to speak. So arrogant. So proud. And he goes, yes, Jesus, I agree. These guys might desert you. But not me. They might. I can believe, you know, these 11 friends of mine, you say, yeah, I can believe that about them. But not me, Lord. I will never desert you. And Jesus says, I'll tell you this. Before the cock crows three times, or before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. And so Jesus is arrested. And he's on trial. And during his trial, people come to him and say, aren't you a friend? of?" No, no, I'm not a friend of Jesus. And we read that as Peter denies him a third time, Jesus, who's, being, who's, who's on trial and he's, he's being beaten, he looks at Peter. He sees him. Now, what do you think the look was on Jesus' face? Anger? Disappointment? I told you so. I don't think it was any of those. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't there, so I don't know. But I'll ask him one day. But I'm pretty sure the look in Jesus' face was, Peter, remember what I've told you about forgiveness. I still love you, Peter. You've just stabbed me in the back. But I still love you. And there's a contrast because Judas also betrayed Jesus. And it says that Judas, filled with remorse, ran away and hanged himself. But Peter, on the very first opportunity, ran towards Christ. And that's the first lesson that we need to to learn. That when we're aware of our failures, we've got two directions we can run. And it's so tempting to run away from Christ because we know we've displeased him. We know we've let him down. We know we've disappointed him. And it's easy to run away. But no, no, no. Run to him. And so... Peter swims, I want to get, I want to be with Jesus as soon as possible. And they have breakfast together and they're having breakfast. And then it seems, reading between the lines, that Jesus kind of takes him to one side for a private conversation. And the best restoration 
first takes place in private and then is often revealed in public where it's necessary. It's not always necessary to be made public. But if Darby and I have an argument, we don't, we don't deal with it. In, we'll deal with it in private. And then if other people are aware, then we'll make it. If Darby sins against me, the Bible says, go to him alone. Let, let's, you don't need to know what's going on. And that's what Jesus often does because he, even in our failure, he wants to protect our dignity. We shouldn't be trying to protect our dignity. But he wants to protect our dignity. Do you know the difference? And so Jesus takes Peter to one side and he says, let's have a little chat. And Jesus says, Peter, tell me, do you really love me more than all these other guys do? You know that conversation we had a few days ago? When I said you'd all deny me and you said they will but I won't. Is that really true? Do you really love me more than the other guys? And in a sense, this question is a dagger in Peter's heart. Because he knows the answer. He was all mouth. A few days ago. Now he's broken. And he can't say yes. And in fact... As we read the scripture, you you miss this in the English. But in the Greek, and you don't have to be a Greek scholar these days. I'm not trying to be clever. I I just have Google like everybody else. But many of us know there are different Greek words for love. And the one word used in this passage is the Greek word agape. And agape, this this Greek word, it meant a love that is self-sacrificial, selfless, and is willing to basically willing to die for the other person willing to give everything for the other person and so what Jesus asks is Peter do you love me enough that you're willing to die for me more than these other guys and Peter looks at him and in pain he says Lord you know that I love you but he can't use the word agape He can't say now because he's broken. He made that boast once and he failed. And he doesn't want to be boastful again. He's a different Peter. He's not arrogant enough now. he's, He's humbled by his failure. And that's why I think God is comfortable with our failure. Because he wants us humble. That's why he chooses the foolish things of this world. Hey, Darby. We are the foolish things of this world. And he says, and what he does instead, Peter says, you know that I I love you. And he uses the word philos, which is basically, I will love you like a brother. It's a different thing, right? So he says, I do love you, but I'm not arrogant enough to to now say that I will die for you. And Jesus says, well, I can still use you. Feed my sheep. And then it seems like a few minutes go to go by and Jesus turns to Peter and he says, uh, so Peter, tell me, do you really love me? And again, he uses the word agape. And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And again, he uses philos. 
take care of my sheep. I can still use you. In your failure and your brokenness, there's still hope. Then a few minutes later, he asks him again. Third time. Isn't it interesting he asked him the question three times after he'd been denied three times? And he says, a third time, Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? Do you know why he was hurt? It wasn't because Jesus didn't believe him. We'll see that in a second. He was hurt because this Jesus, this time Jesus said, okay, Peter, do you feel lost me? Do you love me like, like a brother? And what I believe hurt Peter was, Peter's now thinking, even Jesus knows I'll, 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 I'll never be able to live up to my to that standard because he says Jesus asks him the question and Peter says Lord you know all things you know the way in which I love you you know all things you knew my heart before I did you said I was going to fail when I was confident of success and here's a little secret for you next time you fail It didn't take God by surprise. He knew it was going to happen. And he still asked you anyway. God doesn't call the perfect. He perfects those who are called. And one day we'll be perfect. But until that time we need constant restoration. And so Peter now is like... Jesus, you know the state of my heart. And he's broken now. He's absolutely broken because it seems like even Jesus knows, you'll never love me like that. You'll never love me to the... And he's broken. And in that realisation of his own brokenness, in his own hopelessness. See, Peter was the, I can do it. Peter was the, just... I'll do it in my own strength. When, when they came to arrest Jesus, Peter was the one who picked up the sword and said, I'm going to fight all these guys. Yeah. So confident in his own ability. And actually, because of the love of Jesus, Jesus had to bring him to a place where he had zero confidence in his own ability. So he could then restore him with a confident, confidence in God's ability. Does that make sense to you? And so he's in this place And he's absolutely broken. And here's the thing we've got to be comfortable with. When Jesus wants to restore us, he doesn't ignore the sin. He doesn't skirt around it. We're we're a bit uncomfortable with things sometimes. We're like, oh, don't worry about it, it's fine. And sometimes what that means is there's something that's festering that we won't deal with. But Jesus wants to deal with it and heal it so we can move on. And so he will call sin, sin. He will call failure, failure. Not to leave us there, but to take us out of it. And it's interesting in the English language. I don't know so much about Afrikaans. But it's amazing how we've got all these nice words for sin. Right? Nobody commits adultery anymore, do they? We have affairs. That sounds so much more pleasant, doesn't it? I'm having an affair. Who's catering? <laughs> yeah, we, we, we don't. I heard somebody referring to the looting recently as affirmative shopping. 
people, people like to use phrases that cover up what our sin is. But Jesus calls it what it is because he wants to root it out of us. And so Peter's in this place of absolute brokenness. And now Jesus knows he's ready. And Jesus says, Peter, I'll tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. And this is the most incredible, mind-blowing thing. That in order to give Peter hope, in order to restore Peter, he says, I'm going to tell you something, Peter. Later in life, you're going to be arrested and you're going to be killed. Now, that doesn't sound very comforting to me. How many... Like, if I said I've got a prophetic word for you, how many of you would want that prophetic word? When you're older, you're going to be arrested and killed. But you've got to understand, what is Peter's greatest fear at the moment in this conversation? Is his greatest fear being arrested? No, his greatest fear is failing his Lord who he loves. His greatest fear is, I, his greatest fear is to say, I can't boast that I love you this way. And Jesus is saying, I know your heart. And I know that you do love me this way. And I know that you do love me to the point of death. Because there will come a day when that becomes a reality. And so it's a sobering truth. But it's a sobering truth that gives hope to the heart of Peter. That that which he said he could do is in his own strength. I will never deny you. And failed. That the next time he won't deny Christ. Because of Christ's strength. And in fact church history tells us that many years later as an old man. He was in Rome. And some of his disciples came to him and said. Peter, Peter you've got to get out of Rome. They're looking for you to arrest you and kill you. And so he packed his bags and he was on his way out of Rome. And as he was on his way out of Rome, he had a vision of Jesus walking the other way. And he said to this vision of Jesus, he said, where are you going, Lord? And Jesus said, I'm going to go and be crucified again. And Peter knew, this is my moment. This is the time that Jesus spoke of, where I will glorify him. And he turned around and he went back into Rome and they arrested him. And they said, we're going to crucify you. And he said, no, please. I am not worthy to be crucified. That is the way they killed my master. That is the way they killed my Lord. I am not worthy of that kind of death. And you've got to understand crucifixion was the worst kind of death. It was the most humiliating. And he's saying, it's too good for me. And so they crucified him upside down to mock him. And yet here we are 2,000 years later. And I'm telling you about Peter. The failure. Who through the grace of God was restored. And who glorified Jesus through his life and his death. And as we hear that story, it's like part of me goes, I hope that never happens to me. Anybody with me? But at the same time, I'm saying, Lord, if that ever happened to me, I need the grace that was on Peter. Because I want to glorify you the way he did.
And it's amazing that 2,000 years later, that life and that death glorified Jesus. That failure became an example to us all. And we all know about his failure. The story wouldn't be powerful if we didn't know his failures. And your failures can become more powerful testimonies sometimes than your successes. Unless self-preservation causes you to hide them. Unless self-preservation causes you to run from God. And so Jesus beautifully and gently but firmly addresses the issues, the doubts and the fears and the brokenness in Peter and makes him whole. And now Peter's feeling a bit better. He's probably feeling of like... Feel so warm now. And then he turns around and he sees John. John was the only one who was at the cross. He's the only one who didn't run away. And so Peter says, he turns to the Lord and he says, What about him, Lord? What's going to happen with him? And Jesus' answer is one of the most powerful answers we can learn. These are words you need to inscribe into your hearts and your minds. Without these words, we cannot be truly church. Are you ready? Jesus says, what's that to you? In other words, that's none of your business. What about him? What about his failures? How are you? It's none of your business. Unless he sinned against you and you're going being part of the restoration, it's none of your business. And too often, even in our brokenness, we will, yeah, but what about, what about, what about? Kids do that all the time, right? Not my kids. My kids are amazing. But I've heard it about other kids. Like you discipline, you're disciplining one of your kids and they go, yeah, but what about my brother? He did this. I'm dealing with you right now. And it's almost like, If I can point out that somebody's done worse, I can feel better. No, Jesus said, no, 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 I'm dealing with you. Let me deal with you. What is that to you? I remember some years ago, I'm coming into land soon, I promise. Some years ago, I was in Brazil on an outreach. My first trip to Brazil, I was with Andrew and some other guys. And at the time, I just... um, started working full time for Josh Jen as an, as an elder I was running a year of your life course um, Andrew had come to me a couple of weeks after Elizabeth was born and said will you, will you come on to staff I said yeah sure you know just after your first child's born and then you're taking a massive pay dip uh, people who tell you we're getting to ministry for money they don't know what they're talking about but anyway so the time came and we'd never discussed salary and, and I was about to start work and Andrew said, oh, we've got a small problem. You know, this building that we're building, we've had a few problems and it's a bit more expensive than we planned and, you know, I don't know if it's the economy, but our giving has shrunk and we've got no money to pay you. I said, okay, well, I went before the Lord and the Lord said, this is what I'm calling you to do. I said, okay. So I was actually working for no salary for three months, four months. And during that time, the Lord spoke very clearly to me. And he said, I want you to go to Brazil. I'm going, how can I afford Brazil when I've not got a salary? 
And I know that went on in some of your hearts. When Darby said, get your passports ready to go to the nations, some of you were saying, I can't go to the nations, I've got no money. What's that got to do with it? God's got plenty of money. Yeah? If he wants you there, you prepare yourself and he'll make the way. Okay, that's, that's a freebie on the side. So anyway, I get to Brazil, you know, and I was doing it in faith, so I thought, you know, somebody will bless me with the money for the earth, and it never happened. So I get to Brazil, and it's cost me, and I've got no salary, and I'm like... And we had an off day, a day of freedom, a day just to chill instead of ministry. And we ended up in the middle of Sao Paulo. And basically, the only thing to do at the time was to shop, go around the shops. And, and back then, Brazil was pretty cheap. It was like clothes were about half the price that they were here. So everyone went crazy. Yes, we can go shopping, we can buy new. And I ended up with Andrew Selly. And another friend of mine who was on full-time eldership. And we were going around the shops and they were going, oh, look at this. I've got a bat. And they were buying trousers and caterpillar shoes and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And they were like, Mike, what are you buying? And I'm just kind of saying, no, I don't need anything. It wasn't that I didn't need anything. It's like, I had no money to, but I didn't want to say I've got no money. I didn't, I, I, no, I don't need anything. And then after a couple of hours of them, like, buying a couple of pairs of trousers and a couple of pairs of boots and, you know, some sports gear. Something started to rise up within me. And it wasn't nice. It felt almost physical. It was like, you guys, you both work for the church. You both get a salary. The church has got enough money for you In fact, the church has got so much money for you that you can come shopping in Brazil. And in fact, I know that the church paid for Andrew's airline ticket and I had to pay for my own. And this offence started to rise up. How many of you think I was justified? I thought I was justified. Unfortunately, God spoke to me so clearly because I am so dumb. I am so stupid. But in that moment, before that thing really got a hold of me and mastered me, the Lord said to me, what is that to you? What do you mean, Lord? He said, what did I ask you to do? Did I ask you to work for no salary? Yes, you did, Lord. So who are you doing it for? I'm doing it for you. He said, did I ask them to work for no salary? I said, I don't know. He said, then how are you judging them? You see, in our human ways, it could seem not fair. But God isn't fair. Have you noticed that? He doesn't give us all the same. One of my favorite things to do when I'm preaching like this, I say, if God was fair, things like this wouldn't happen. (laughs) He didn't deserve that. It happened. But God is just. And God knows what's best for us. And he doesn't treat us equally. He treats us uniquely. And sometimes, you, like children, you see one child and they seem to be getting away with murder and another one doesn't. It's not fair. What is that to you? Do you trust God to do what's best for you? Then why try and judge how God is treating somebody else? Does that make sense? Sorry, I got a bit harsh there. I didn't mean to. I'm trying to be gentle. But honestly, why does he get to preach and I don't? Why does he get to be made an elder and I don't? Why does he get blessed with a 
nice house or a nice car and I don't? Why does he get and I don't? What is that to you? What is that? To, what have I asked you to do? Honestly, those words can change your life. The bottom line is this. Do you want your brother to be blessed? Do you want your brother to restore, be restored? Do you want your brother to be victorious? Because sometimes that question, what about, is because I value my own success above the success of others. And here's the truth. I desperately pray that Darby is successful here. Because his success is my success. And is your success. And I pray the church across the road is successful if they're preaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Because if they're preaching the real gospel and people are getting saved, praise God, the kingdom is growing. What does it matter? What about them? Now, if the issue is between me and Darby, then it is my business. And I need to do my best to restore him. But if it's not, what about him? What is that to you? The lesson I learned the hard way, but it saved my life many, many times. And to sum up, what am I saying? Somebody once said, there is a condition to receiving God's mercy. That might mess with some of your heads. I thought it was unconditional. No, there's one condition to receiving the mercy of God. Do you know what it is? Recognizing that you need mercy. A person who doesn't think they need mercy can't receive it. But if we recognize, each of us, that we're sinful, broken, constantly failing, weak and empty vessels that need pouring full with the grace and glory of God. If we recognize that, then he comes and he transforms ugly broken pots into beautiful vessels for his glory and I want to encourage us in two things one be those who recognize our own brokenness and allow him to restore us and two to see each other not as we used to be not even as we are but to see each other as we can become as we're restored into the fullness of God and rejoice in that, even those who've hurt us. Can you rejoice in the victory of those who've hurt you? Can you rejoice in the restoration? Because if I fail God, it often means I've failed other people as well. Recently, I'll just finish with this. I've only recently come back onto serving uh, and functioning as an elder. I spent 18 months not actually uh, functioning as an elder because things in my family and things with, with my marriage where I needed to focus on that because your family is your first congregation, right? And one of the hardest things in that was my wife felt so guilty. She's saying, it's my fault. She said, and so because of me, she said, the whole of Josh Jen is suffering. I don't know. I think Josh Jen did pretty well without me, personally. <laughs> and, and Brazil is suffering. And, 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 and all of these people are suffering because of what I've done. I said, no, no, it's because of what I've done. 
But my failure in one area hurt people in other areas. I have to own that. But thank God that he's bigger than my failures. Thank God that his grace is sufficient. Thank God that he resurrects that which is dead. Thank God that he gives hope to the hopeless. Thank God that he takes the weakest, most sinful, biggest failures and uses them for his glory. And so if you've hurt others through your failure, or if others have hurt you, I urge you to be a people who desire and pray for and work towards the restoration of every individual and every relationship you have 